We reject the ideology of globalism, and we embrace the doctrine of patriotism. Not only will this tax plan pay for itself, but it will pay down debt. There are moral and legal obligation questions that I think we'll have to wrestle with as a society. When we as people go wobbly on the truth, we go wobbly on America. All you have to do is look at the numbers, look at what we've done. And this is only the beginning. Good morning, everyone. You're tuned in to 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. This is Evidence of Design, and it is Saturday, November 14th, 2020. Thank you all for tuning in to your local grassroots radio station. My name is Jason Taylor, host of Evidence of Design, and we're joined in studio by my good friend and co-host, Matt Treadwell. Good morning. On today's up, well, we're not joined by Mary Lawrence today, our normal co-host. She's preparing something for uh, for continued education, so go, Mary. Best of luck. On today's show, we are talking about two main things. One is COVID-19. We always do the COVID-19 numbers to make sure that we're all up to date on the same set of facts. So we're talking about COVID-19 globally, nationally, and locally. The numbers aren't good. Uh, Monroe County is no longer, you know, we're kind of, for the first time, Monroe County is not in the eye of the hurricane. We are part of the hurricane. We're being hit by the hurricane. We are contributing to the hurricane. Uh, the numbers in Monroe County are really bad. They're not about to be bad. They're not getting bad. Um, they, they are bad. If anything, they're going to get worse. So we need to take whatever precautions we can and take this seriously because now uh, basically one out of more than one out of every 100 people in Monroe County either have or have had COVID-19. So it's not good. We're going to delve deeply into the numbers today, comprehensively looking at the numbers for COVID-19 globally, nationally, and locally, and projecting forward what might happen. How will things look next week, next month, locally, given mandates coming down by Governor Andrew Cuomo? Uh, schools may all shut down again. We'll see what happens. <clears throat> In the second half of the hour, we're going to cover statements by Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell. He spoke this week at the European Central Bank Commission, and uh, Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell has basically said the future economy, the post-COVID-19 economy, will be different, forever different, than the pre-COVID-19 economy. Low-skill workers especially will be more and more ostracized, put out by this new economy, and unable to find long-term gainful employment. Now, uh, for those who've tuned into Evidence of Design before, we are highly critical of our economy. We think that the economy is fundamentally broken to support greed and profit over human lives and human experience. And so, you know, it's not like, uh-oh, the economy is all of a sudden going to be bad thanks to COVID. The economy's been bad, folks. Uh, e even after this longest economic expansion in, you know, so-called 10 years, that so-called expansion, the economy's been bad for several reasons. And, you know, we're going to get into that more in the second half of the hour and, uh, you know, delve into why Jerome Powell thinks that we have to be especially worried about the most precarious Americans after COVID-19, whenever that might come, and what steps we can do, because we have the power and capability to change things in our economy so that we value human lives more than greed and profit. 
We'll get into all of that this hour. And because we're live, you're welcome to give us a call at any time, 585-219-8889. Again, that's 585-219-8889. So we're going to get into the COVID-19 numbers locally, nationally, and globally right after a short break. Hang on. I believe that was Nirvana. Matt will have to update us. He had to step out of the studio for just one second. But this is Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. Thank you for tuning in. Let's talk about COVID-19 right now. So it is pretty bad out there, folks. Let's tune in to the, so we're all on the same page on the facts and figures so we can be the most prepared to take care of ourselves and others because we are all in this together as members of the same society. So globally, talking about the whole world, as of Friday, yesterday, there have been four, or excuse me, 54 million cases of COVID-19. 54 million. There's been 1,300,000 deaths. The U.S. continues to have the most cases of COVID-19 in the world at 11 million. So the U.S. has around one-fifth of all of the COVID-19 cases in the world, despite the fact that we only have 4% of the people in the, United, in the whole world. So while the U.S. has the most cases in the world with 11 million, India has the second most cases in the world at 9 million, and Brazil has the third most cases in the world at Six million. And oh my God, Matt is locked out of the studio. There's going to be radio silence for five seconds because I have to let him in. Hang on. Excellent. And Matt, I was just talking about the latest COVID-19 figures globally. There's 54 million cases, 1.3 million deaths. The U.S. continues to lead the world with number of confirmed cases. Although we have 4% of the world's population, we have one-fifth of all cases. India is in second with the most number of cases, and Brazil follows India. So here's the deal, though. If you take out India and Brazil, the U.S. has more cases than the next 10 countries combined. Those countries would be Russia, Spain, the United Kingdom, Argentina, Colombia, Italy, Mexico, Peru, and Germany. Yeah, I think and I'm... I'm don't like fact check me on this because I might be wrong, but I think I remember reading sometime at some point this week that the number of cases in Texas had uh, superseded Italy's. Yeah, I think I saw that too. Where te- just the COVID cases in Texas alone is more than like other countries. It would be in like the top ten, just Texas alone, because everything's bigger in Texas, including the number of COVID cases. <laughs> It's it's a pretty scary stuff. Uh, what this reminds me of, the, the, where the U.S. has more of a number than the next 10 countries combined is our defense budget. <laughs> kind of works the same way. Oh, wow. <laughs> where when you add up how much the U.S. spends on our defense, it's more than more than the next 10 to, you know, 15 countries combined when you take out China. So same thing with COVID, I guess. Uh, not good. You know, our U.S. population, so uh, the U.S. population is around 330 million the population of all of those countries that we just named, the U.S. has more cases than those 10 countries. Their combined population is like 840 million. So they have almost three times the amount of people we have in 10 countries, yet we still have more cases than all of them combined. Once again, the U.S. has 4% of the world's population, but one-fifth of all of the cases and one-fifth of all the deaths. 
people and families have suffered and died and continue to do so throughout this pandemic. We've been hovering around that. I mean, we've been at like a fourth and a fifth of the number of cases in the world since like, what, April, May? Ever since our federal government led by President outgoing president donald j trump one-term president donald j well, we trump. don't know jason we'll yeah. have to wait and see of course yeah the results aren't i'm in, being right? facetious Ex- absolutely donald j trump lost the election goodbye good riddance uh thanks to him and his administration and his inability to deal with facts uh this is this is an american a unique american disaster you know affecting the whole world but unique american disaster is it any wonder that the three leading country the three countries with the leading number of coronavirus cases are all helmed by authoritarian leaning leaders right u.s india brazil all led by authoritarian leaders who are nationalistic and care more about uh, misinformation than facts and appearing strong by not wearing a mask at least trump and jair bolsonaro yep and the fourth country is russia so there you go yeah top four (laughs) you know top four uh i don't think like a full house or something (laughs) i don't think that's a coincidence matt um it's too bad that 70 million americans still voted for donald trump but you know, uh, we're living in a post fact reality, Jason. Yeah, a, a post fact reality. It's a, it's a scary world. Times are sad. Times suck. Um, and we'll get to that later on in the show. But there are things we can do about it. We shouldn't give up hope because there are things we can do about it. And that's why we have the show because there are things we can do about it. You can take care of yourself and your loved ones if you're able to stay at home and work remotely. Uh, order takeout instead of dining out. Always wear a mask when you do go out, wash your hands regularly, and uh, practice physical distancing, not social distancing, as Jason is apt to remind us. Exactly. Those are great steps and simple actions to do, that we all have the power to do it. So we've been talking globally. Let's zoom in at the U.S. Again, there's 11 million cases of COVID-19 in the United States. There are more than 250,000 deaths, or at least very close to it right now. 250,000 deaths. In less than a year, a quarter of a million Americans have died from COVID-19. COVID-19 is now the third leading cause of death in the U.S. this year, behind only cancer and heart disease. It's more than all of the deaths attributed to accidents, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, stroke, Alzheimer's disease, and diabetes. COVID-19 is now the third leading cause of death in the United States. Just yesterday, on Friday, we set a record. 182,000 new cases in the United States and 1,400 deaths in one day from COVID-19. Friday the 13th. (laughs) That is an astounding number, especially considering that, I don't know, two or three weeks ago at the last presidential debate, Donald Trump had the audacity to stand on stage and tell the American people that we've turned the corner on COVID-19 and then it's disappearing very soon. Since I mean, technically, the first half of that statement could be correct. We're turning the corner and that it's getting much, much worse. <laughs> We're going the wrong way. <laughs> it's it's astounding. It's it's just it's just so sad. It's like the flu, baby. Yep, he says it's just like the flu. It's not like the flu. The flu doesn't do this to people. Just one month ago, one month ago, when we were doing these numbers, we were averaging 50,000 new cases a day. Now we're averaging 182,000 new cases a day. Here's the thing. 
it's not just it's not just in one area. It's not red states versus blue states. <laughs> it's not urban places versus rural places. Yeah, it's all over the country. It's, it's everywhere. You know, in the spring, we saw it the most in New York for several reasons. We went through that, and Governor Cuomo, I think, pulled us out of it with his leadership. And all of us doing the steps, right? It wasn't just Cuomo. It was him being a leader and us following the good example. That's how society should work. I think we also, particularly in Monroe County, benefited from the fact that we had few cases here, but we were set into similar lockdown measures as New York City. Exactly. Not perhaps as uh, severe, but, you know, similar because of the statewide um, protocols that were put in place. And now it seems very much the case that the virus is now here in the county. And this is coming at a time when I believe people are starting to feel fatigue from following protocols and wearing masks all the time and also when the weather is changing uh to become more colder where we know at least viruses like the flu uh thrive in cold weather that's why it's the flu season in winter um i don't know if there's anything conclusive on covid19 in regards to whether or not the cold weather uh, it helps the virus survive more or linger in the air more longer. But I do know that people are concerned, of course, that with the cold weather, people will be spending more time in, indoors, you know, potentially congregating together indoors instead of outside where the air flow is more, is able to diffuse the virus more easily. And that is always a potential for spreading, for being a vector. Yeah, those are all really good points, Matt. And you're right at the start of that where Monroe County followed what you could call stringent. You know, I think they were common sense. I don't know if I'd call them stringent. Just, just you know, talking about the words. Um, COVID, you know, we followed the same policies that New York City followed when New York City was getting hammered by the very first iteration manifestation wave of the virus in the United States. And, you know, we as citizens, I think, took it fairly seriously locally. Our masks rate seemed really great. Um, and, you know, we were taking it pretty seriously. And that's good. Good on us. Good on leadership. We, we saw that we could bend the curve. We, you know, we actually turned the corner here <laughs> in a good direction. Unlike what Donald Trump's talking about, some made up corner in the wrong direction. So over the summer, COVID-19 started to hit the South. And now in the fall, you know, first really hit the Midwest. And now it's basically everywhere. Again, not red versus blue, not urban versus rural. This is a unique American problem because of you, un- well, almost unique failed American leadership. Again, we talked about how it's so ironic how the top four countries in the world, U.S., India, Brazil, Russia, are all led by authoritarian leaders. Or authoritarian leaning. Yes. It's it's so sad how we have to describe the U.S. president as authoritarian, if not at least authoritarian he's leaning. To be. Oh, yeah, no, he absolutely is. There's no, I mean, he's, he's authoritarian. That's it, you know? I mean, what, when do we call him authoritarian? When he finally rips up the Constitution? I mean, by then it's too late. Well, you know, when do we, when do we say that COVID-19 is bad in Monroe County? When, when everyone's in the hospital? You know, no, it's bad. Like, you know, we gotta call it out, like, for what it is. You, you don't, like, tiptoe the line. And, you know, it's just like, it's bad. <laughs> so you look at the numbers, it's bad. Yeah. You know, looking at what Trump does is bad. And so it's, it's okay to call it out bad. Um, he's authoritarian. Because what he does is authoritarian. So, um, you know, it's, it is quite sad. Well, let's look locally now. We talk globally. We talk nationally. Let's look locally. Here in Monroe County, to date, we've had 9,600 of cases, confirmed cases of COVID-19. Remember, all of these numbers are likely more. 
These are only confirmed numbers that we have. We know that causes of death from COVID-19 are not always directly attributed to COVID-19 because, you know, how do you know what and when someone passes away from something? Sometimes it's easier, sometimes it's harder. So we know that the death numbers are higher. We know that the confirmed case, that the cases are actually higher, right? We're only talking about confirmed instances. Right, so there's 9,600 cases to date of COVID-19 here in Monroe County. Right now, there's 1,900 active confirmed cases. So it has exploded in the past mm -hmm. two to three weeks here in Monroe County. There's yeah, we've been... Um, every couple of days this past week, we have um, broken our record for a number of new cases, I believe. Yep. It was like... Uh, there's like 200 some odd cases, like 256, I think on Sunday and then like 300 and some odd cases and on Tuesday or Wednesday. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a few weeks ago it was a hundred, then it was 150, then it was 200 this week. It's been averaging around 250 and then we got 300, we broke 300 this week. So it, it's bad, right? We're not getting bad. It's bad. So given the amount of cases to date, 9,600, divided by the population of Monroe County, 740,000, uh, over 1.35% of Monroe County residents either have COVID-19 right now or have had it. That's like a one out of 100 chance, you know, so that's a serious thing. And locally, three, over 300, I think around 310 people have died due to COVID-19 to date. Just a reminder that you're tuned into 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. You're listening to Evidence of Design, and we're just going through the latest COVID-19 facts and figures globally, nationally, and locally. You can mm. give us a call at 585-219-8889. Matt, let's continue to talk about the local numbers. You're right. This week, we broke 300 cases in one day. That's a, that's a record. Uh, you know, <laughs> records are... <laughs> What they are. I mean, we've been breaking records all over the place, locally and nationally. Uh, <laughs> it's nice to know we're number one at something. Yeah, you know, go U.S. Uh, we've had a seven-day average of around 250 cases a day in Monroe County. That's a that's an astounding average, given that uh, a month ago, two months ago, it was like, you know, 10 to 20 at yeah. most cases a day. And our seven-day average positivity rate from testing is 4.55%. It was very high. Hmm. Well, or, um, uh, Monroe, Monroe County Health Commissioner Michael Mendoza said this week in one of his daily briefings with County Executive Adam Bellow that we've had more cases in just three days this week in Monroe County than the entire month of September. <laughs> Part of this problem, Monroe County Executive Adam Bellow says that there's less cooperation with contact tracers now. So when you get COVID-19, uh, someone from the health department or some other organization will contact you to say, hey, you know, sorry to hear you have COVID. Here's what we got to do. Let's figure out, you know, who, who you're in contact, contact with, with yeah. who's been expo potentially exposed, and let's stay in touch every day to, uh, you know, figure out how you're feeling and, um, you know, make sure that you're distancing from other folks. Is there any sort of... Um word on why they're seeing less cooperation? Uh, I think Adam Bello was saying that people have fatigue, you know, COVID-19 fatigue, like as he spoke to Matt. We are now eight to nine months into this pandemic in an exhausting political year with... Wow. <laughs> 
you know, everything's exhausting. Everything is exhausting. <laughs> everything's right? been exhausting. Yeah, it's, it's just the, the past four years have been exhausting. The past ten, the past 20, yeah, it just just if you're if you share the same political ideas as Matt and I, um, life has been exhausting for a long time, <laughs> and we're not old. <laughs> we are young people, <laughs> relatively speaking. Yes, so um, it, we're living through exhausting times. I think for most Americans, even if you don't happen to think the same way that Matt and I do. And so we can all agree that we're all very tired of what we think is wrong <laughs> this country. Yes. But what we think is wrong with this country, we, we probably don't all agree on. It really is like watching a train just going down the track and people are just standing in the track and everyone's just watching the train. And you're just like, boy, it would be great if that train could, you know, if not turn around, at least put the brakes on. That would make sense. And it's just... It, you know, not only are the people not moving out of the way, but the train's not stopping or turning around. So that, that's kind of what it's like. It's just watching the train. And uh, it's very tiring to watch something that you see is wrong continue to happen. <laughs> but we will keep fighting that. Because you know what you and I have that separates us from lesser creatures? <laughs> like that? lizards? We have hope. Oh, I thought you were going to say brains. No, no, lizards got brains too. They do. I don't, do they, but not like a, a developed prefrontal cortex, right? And a sloped forehead, or whatever. <laughs> that's very important. <laughs> we have hope, Matt. You and I, and that's why. Do we? You're making some assumptions here. <laughs> we'll keep fighting. That's why we got this show going on. So um, let's let's continue with these local numbers. Uh, County Executive Adam Bellows says there's less cooperation with contact tracers. Folks, please please take the science seriously, right? We're, we're all in this together. We don't you don't want to have COVID. You don't want your loved ones to have COVID. I don't want to have COVID. Um, and and the more folks who get COVID, the longer this thing plays out. The whole theory is if you just shut everything down, if we just go through the initial pain, you know, if we shut society down for a month. We get COVID under control, then we can reopen things and keep everything distant. That's what China did, and it worked. China has been relatively fine. The problem when COVID-19 is so widespread as it in, is now is twofold. One, contact tracing doesn't really work as much as it should anymore because it is so widespread. We, we don't have enough resources to contact trace people when you're going about your daily life. Imagine pre-COVID times, all the people you interact with on a daily basis. It would be nigh impossible to to chart that. Although I'm sure Google, Amazon, and Facebook are doing it with their with their you know surveillance technology. <laughs> I'm sure they can do it. But um, you know, in terms of public health officials, <laughs> pretty hard. Well, there, it's interesting you bring that up, Jason, because there was a story that broke last week um, that I forgot to bring up during last week's show. But essentially, it found that in the early months of the of the pandemic, back in February, the CDC, when it first re- sent out its first batch of tests to help health officials contact trace people who had the pandemic, who had caught the the virus, the test they sent out failed something like 30% Mm. of the time and misidentified the virus in people that didn't have it. And um, I guess that I I sent this to you last night and and you texted me, well, of course it did, because uh, that's just been the story. You know, the, the general narrative of the U.S.'s handling of the um, of this pandemic, but it is it is sort of um, interesting. I, 
I don't know if there's been any sort of developments since it first came out last week. We know that there's been a lot of sort of tension between Trump specifically and the CDC. He's sort of, you know, the CDC will, will like publish its guidelines and then Trump will say something that goes completely against that and the CDC will re- revise itself because they're scared of him or, or whatever it is. And um, I don't know if this particular instance had anything to do with something Trump did or said. It, it looks like it might have just been, you know... Um, the department itself to blame, but yeah, there you're you're describing how early on in the pandemic the CDC had testing kits that failed. It, we we have to remember there's so much that's happened since then. We need to remember that you're totally right, Matt. The very beginning of the pandemic, the U.S. had such a lag to jump on testing, unlike other countries, right? There's been that there's been that infamous story where both South Korea and the U.S. had their first confirmed case on the same day. South Korea got it under control. The U.S. did not. Now, there could be several reasons for that. One, as been attributed to research in the general narrative, is that South Korea tested well and efficiently. The U.S. did not. Donald Trump, for weeks, for months, was saying, you want a COVID test, go get one. When, in fact, we knew that unless you were an NBA player or a member of the media or a member of the government... Basically, unless you were rich and famous, you couldn't get a test, right? That was back at the beginning of, of, of COVID-19. You couldn't get a test, at least not easily for everyone who needed it. Different in South Korea, different in other countries. One of the problems for that, Matt, is what you're describing, where the CDC came out with test kits. They developed their own that were faulty, it turned out. So not only were we lagging and getting tests out, but once we got tests out, they were faulty. And this, for some reason, the CDC and the U.S. government decided to try to manufacture our own tests instead of using the one by, I forgot who developed it, whether there was the World Health Organization or something else or from China, but yeah, there yeah. already was a test out there that we could have used and other countries did. And it worked better than the CDC's one. You know, now our testing is okay. Obviously, we have test kits that work and it's more distributed, but you're describing something in the beginning of the pandemic that, that hurt us. And whether or not it was just another instance of Donald J. Trump's incompetence and malfeasance and authoritarianism that deserves him to reside in the dustbins of history or another failed government policy, you know, I'm not sure. But that is another problem with our COVID-19 response. Yeah. Yeah. And it's worth pointing out that, um, like you said, Jason, this is uh, this was at a time when uh, testing was critical in the sense that it really could have turned around the the number of cases we saw you know when you have a low number of cases early on in a pandemic it's much easier to contact trace the few people who have had it and the people that they've come into contact with now that the virus is so widespread it's much more difficult yeah and that gets back to my original point on this was that you know there's two problems where we're at with covid right now one is you know contact tracing is much much harder when we're in widespread community transition because it's it's nigh impossible to to nail down everything should still be done still is being done and we should take contact tracing efforts seriously and abide by you know the messages and warnings that we get so that we can get this under control but it becomes much harder the cat is out of the bag as it is said you know and and so it's it's too late horse is out of the barn (laughs) right (laughs) pick whatever aphorism you want The second problem of having such widespread community transmission and high COVID-19 rates is the scariest one, I think. And that is that hospitals get filled up. Mm-hmm. We lose our capacity to treat, to treat those people. who are sick. Not just with COVID-19. 
This is what we were. This is what a lot of like media coverage was focusing on several months ago when it was like we don't have enough ventilators to you know save people, and we were having there there were stories. Oh, this is <laughs> I'm having like flashbacks right now. There were stories of, of of doctors saying you know we're having to like prioritize who gets treatment. So you know if you're an older person and you have uh, pre-existing conditions and you have COVID and you the chances for you don't look as good as for somebody who's like maybe younger, doesn't have pre-existing conditions, but also has COVID. We're going to try and, and prioritize the person who, who can, who we think can survive over the person who, you know, has worse chances. And that's horrible. Yeah. It's medical ethics, right? And we went through that in New York. That's what happened in New York city. It's, it's what's been happening. None of that went away. The virus has been here. The potential to have our systems be overrun has always been here, despite the rhetoric from our government. And now that's where we're going. Okay. It's, it's where we're already at, right? It's, it's happening. And uh, locally, according to Rochester First, uh, two days ago, it says strong hospitals nearing 100% capacity. ICUs, hospital in general. You know, God bless the healthcare workers who've been going to work every day and are on the front lines. You know, do you want to be that person in the hospital who doesn't get treatment because there's not enough people or, or supplies. Not enough beds. Not enough beds. You know, I mean, it's, it's horrifying. And, and also people, you know, just people don't stop having heart attacks and cancer and other everyday, you know, getting in car accidents just right. because COVID-19 is happening. So we, we, and, and our public health infrastructure has been disinvested in for decades. Thanks to Republican austerity. So it's it just, <laughs> is it just Republican though? Yeah. Democrat too, but mainly Republican. Uh, so, you know, it, it's it's the train going down the track. Right. And just, we can, <laughs> the, here's the problems, folks, and but the train doesn't slow down because the people in power aren't making it slow down or turn around because they're bad people in power. Or, or they're not bad people. They're, they're, they're people who are bad leaders. I can at least say that. They're, they shouldn't be in leadership positions. They shouldn't hold power. And so, but, you know, we give them power and we shouldn't do that. And, and so it's just, it's just really scary and sad. And so, um, you know, with the, the thing with COVID is that yes, we have fatigue is because we never got a handle on this. And so it feels so tiresome to talk about COVID every week. If we had just shut the country down for a month, at least, and contact traced the heck out of everything, got people treatment, then we could have sort of gotten back to normalcy a little sooner. But instead we had, we politicized the virus and are now at this place where the horse is out of the barn and you know, what do we do? Oh, do we shut everything down again? But the economy's already been so bad and the federal government hasn't given people the stimulus they need. And golly, I don't know how I can manage it. Well, there were, there were multiple things, you know, that we could have done. Yeah. And it's just like, it's been such a, just at every turn, it seems like we've made the wrong decision, you know? Yeah. Like the, the, the failures in testing, the, the just absolute sort of, uh, disregard that the, the, that our federal leadership had for the virus for months, the, the just absolute unwillingness to take it seriously. Even as, you know, we found out months ago, uh, Trump understood, um, at least privately, how serious this could be far before he was admitting it publicly. Um, 
And 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 just like the the sort of haphazard shutting down of the country, where we shut down parts of it but not all of it, and uh, the the absolute um, just ringing the 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 way Republicans have just wringed their hands of like any sort of economic uh, um, support for the working class who have been hit hardest in this pandemic. Communities of color, especially essential workers. It's uh, it's tragic. I don't think there's another. There's a, I don't think there's a a better word for it. It's a tragedy. It it absolutely is. It's a it's a national tragedy that is born out of other national tragedies. And we you know we've had several episodes on COVID nineteen is the crisis within the crises born out of, you know, other national tragedies. Matt, you're talking about workers, you know, so-called essential workers <laughs> who uh, who are, you know, on the front lines because they can't afford or don't have the privilege to not be on the front lines. You know, they don't have uh, white-collar jobs to work from home. And they have to go out every day to work low-wage jobs and not have guaranteed health care. And then they're the first ones to go when budget cuts happen. And it's tough. It's, uh... Abhorrent. Yeah. It's merciless. Anyway. So, so folks, you Keeping can... it positive here on... Hey! Speaking of evidence of design, you can give us a call. Let us know what you think. Do you have a different angle, or do you want to share your thoughts on the matter? 585-219-8889. Are you a right to infector? <laughs> are you a right to infect, or are you a, a right to live in a diverse civil society that looks out for human needs over the needs of profit and greed? <laughs> Let us know. 585-219-8889. This is Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. I have a question for you, Jason. Hit it. Although we don't typically get into the realms of speculation too much on this show. How inevit- inevitable do you feel the sort of politicization of this virus was. Do you think that was something that Donald Trump solely owns, or do you think that was going to happen whether or not he was our president eventually anyway? That's a, that's a really great question. So you're, you're speaking about politicization of a virus, meaning, you know, we had a choice as a society. One is you could listen to science, data, health facts, experts. health experts, or disregard that and come up with your own narratives that back up your own worldviews that aren't supported by data science facts health experts i don't think you can deny that donald trump at the very least accelerated the politicization of this virus because we saw when the cdc first announced that it was going to start suggesting people to start wearing masks you know they first didn't say that supposedly because there wasn't enough ppe going around and they wanted to prioritize healthcare workers which fair enough um but I think, like, when when Donald Trump first was, like, listing out and announcing at one of his press conferences the, that um, the CDC recommended that you wear a mask, he's like, I guess you can do that if you want to. I don't think I'm going to. And then, you know, just about in every single public exp- appearance he's ever made since then, except on maybe, like, 
two or three occasions he's not worn a mask and he's sort of like uh there's been a lot of commentary about how he sees that as like a, a machismo thing you know appearing strong in the face of this even though like the he got covid <laughs> yeah like, but you know i i'm wondering because because i think that there is uh there's already been even before donald trump there was such an anti sort of um expertise sentiment that's been building in america for decades that you know i feel like we would have gotten to this point eventually either way uh no i i think so too matt so you know we're talking about kind of what's the straw that broke the camel's back was donald trump the spark or was he the accelerant you know i i, I don't know he's certainly not helpful um he's certainly pressing the accelerant on the train as opposed to stopping it um, he's certainly not switching the tracks. Uh, and we know that Donald Trump, we've covered this before, how he is the single biggest spreader of disinformation about COVID-19. And he yeah. wields the most powerful bully pulpit in the entire world. So is Donald Trump responsible and culpable? Yeah. He should be, again, regarded in the dustbins of history. Uh, however, regardless of what you or I think or yell about Donald Trump, there are 70 million people who voted for him. And uh, one half of all of the political parties in the United States uh, rapidly support him and and enable him. And so, you know, it, I, we, it's not enough for you and I to be mad at Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump, which we should be because they're horrible, abhorrent leaders who are destroying this country and have essentially no regard for the vast majority of Americans. They simply don't care whether you live or die. I don't think you can argue with that. The, you know, their policies prove that. So whether or not we get angry at them, I mean, there are 70 million people who voted for Donald Trump. And so that, that's where my efforts are in talking with people on a specific basis because they believe the things that Donald Trump says. And they believe the virus isn't serious. They believe that masks are a hoax. Dr. Anthony Fauci had death threats. Why is a scientist getting death threats? Someone who's trying to protect you. Why has the Republican Party denied climate change for decades? Because they care more about greed and money than they do about human lives. Well, we know that. I think the question that I'm more interested in asking these days is why do people who don't benefit from any of that, you know, the poor working class people who end up voting Republican either way, why do they support them? Be yeah. So, you know, the, the question is kind of why do people vote against their material interests? The old argument goes, if you are a member of the poor or working class, why are you voting for a Republican? the party that is the party of big business and money. I have talked to several Trump supporters and Republicans who think the opposite. They think that the Democratic Party has sold out the working class. They think that the Democratic Party, the party of so-called NAFTA, you know, under Bill Clinton, has, and the party of globalization has moved jobs and money away because, because for some reason the Democrats are crazy globalists who support other countries more than the U.S. They believe that. They believe when Donald Trump says America first that he means poor working Americans first. They believe that. They are wrong. That's why we have this radio show. This radio show was started to reach out to poor and working class Americans and educate them on how the economy works such that they can support more progressive, if not democratic policies. And Matt, you and I have criticized the Democratic Party on this show. We tend to support Democrats more than Republicans, but we are it's critical. More like, it's more like, like uh, supporting the, the slow burn over the raging inferno. Right. Really. 
Yeah. So because it, I mean, I'll just say that when it comes to the mainstream Democratic Party, even though we have seen some inroads made by progressives over the past couple of years, especially with Bernie Sanders' two presidential campaigns and sort of the shifting attitudes on universal health care, the, the, the overall sort of economic streak and direction of the Democratic Party for the last 50 years has been one that's much more in line with uh, the same sorts of policies that Republicans support. Like, you know, Republicans will say, we're going to slash taxes like you wouldn't believe. And Democrats will say, we're going to slash taxes just by not as much, essentially. And and so I, you know, when when you're saying, Jason, that you're talking to people who believe the Democratic Party have sold out working class people, I don't think that they're necessarily wrong in that assessment. Sure, absolutely. They're, They're not wrong because the mainstream, both the mainstream economic policies of both parties have been harmful to working class people in America. Why? Because we live in a free market, neoliberal capitalist society where both parties in power generally support capitalism over human needs and rights. Because socialism or any idea where human beings should be taken care of by the government and collective society is demonized as antithetical to what it means to be an American. That is the fault of both parties, but primarily Republican, Matt. Remember, Democrats are being blamed for following Republican policies. Republicans invented these modern issues. Democrats are culpable, too, and we hold them accountable. But Republican, the core of the Republican Party and philosophy is, is damaging to the American ethos and working life. And therefore, we should critique both, but it doesn't. It's not. A, it's not a he shed, she said, right? We shouldn't fall sure. into the trap. It's, we no. shouldn't fall into the trap of the scarecrow. You know, the moment you critique a Republican, saying, "Well, Democrats do it too," absolutely, and that's why we're arguing to have a transcending politics in this class, something like what Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio Cortez supports for, something that values human lives over profit. That's what we argue for, and it, it. You know, there's nuance to things. Everything's not always black and white, and it's okay to go there. We need to have the capacity within ourselves to appreciate nuance. And so I'm scared by the 70 million people who supported Donald Trump and the Republican Party through this election. I'm scared in that this president has shown authoritarian tendencies like never before. And a president who has so woefully underperformed his duties in office. Ergo, all the stats we've shared this hour about COVID-19 and a million other things. I'm scared that those people think that Trump is a better solution than the Democratic Party. That horrifies me. And our job then, as people who are non-Republicans, and even people who aren't super keen on the Democrats, is to try as clearly as we can to articulate why our vision of society would be better than the vision that these people think. And I think we can win them over. Because they are like you and I. They are, we're all in the same boat as victims of capital, right? We are, all of our labor is being exploited. Exploited. You know, we are all being, unless you're a member of the 1%, just to use an example, you are being exploited. Unless you are a business, a multi-millionaire, billionaire business owner, you're being exploited. You should have free health care. You should have housing as a human right. You deserve universal basic income. You deserve this. You deserve a country and a leadership that tells you the truth about things. You deserve a country and leadership that has empathy. You deserve a country and leadership that takes climate change seriously. You deserve a country and leadership that treats human beings equally, regardless of their 
you know, national origin, race, color, creed, etc. You deserve that as a human being. And we should be fighting for a politics that is inclusive of all of that. And part of that includes doing economic transformation that seems really scary. Part of that economic transformation we would argue for includes drastically raising the taxes on the wealthiest income earners and wealth holders in the United States. And that's not unprecedented. The United States used to do that. We are not calling for anything we have not done before. We need to drastically increase the taxation on the wealthiest income earners and wealth holders in this country so that they can have less political power and more of that money can be transferred into the civil society so that all of us, including those wealthiest income owners and wealth holders, can have universal basic income, universal health care, universal housing, and a government that is responsive to the dire crisis posed by climate change, and a government that can take care of the needs of its people. We all deserve that. So one part of the economic transformation is to increase taxation. The other part of the economic transformation is to somehow figure out a way to make policies like universal basic income, universal health care, universal housing happen. And we can do that. The idea that we as a human society cannot figure out how to make health care guaranteed for everyone is laughable. We can send a human being to the moon. Other countries in the, on this globe have universal health care. The idea that we as Americans cannot figure out how to guarantee people health care is disgustingly laughable. We can do it. You know why we're not doing it? Because the people in power don't want to do it. Well, I mean, we talked about that. I know you and I talked about this, at least in private, a few months ago. But there was something, uh, some kind of argument you said. There's never been, like, the the idea that we don't know how to do something has never been, in politics, a reason to not try to figure out how to do it. Right? Right. Like, when people say, one of the, one of the common sort of uh, criticisms or, I guess, uh, explanations or defenses that people give when they say there's why don't we have universal health care in america it's like well there's just we don't know how to do it there's no way to do it and it's like that's never in this in the history of sort of political development we don't know how to do something has never been a reason to not try to figure it out like that's such a a non-starter that's such a i, I don't know how to put it exactly but it just as soon as you think about it, it doesn't make sense as an argument not to try. Right. That's how learning and human growth works. If you didn't do anything that you didn't know how to do, you wouldn't do anything. You would be born and then just pee, poop, and cry until you died. <laughs> you know, like that. Because even you know, dogs are born knowing how to swim. Humans are born knowing how to <laughs> pass bodily fluids and cry. You know. Yeah. So, like, it just, it's a silly idea. And also, Matt, I should say, we we know how to do universal health care. There's bills that have been passed that are on the floor. Sure. Senator Bernie Sanders has one of them, just for instance. So, so the bills are there. The problem is the people who we've given power aren't passing it. Mitch McConnell is not going to do it. And by the way, people elected Mitch McConnell again for their six years in the Senate this election. So, I mean, and he's probably going to be the Senate Majority Leader unless every single voter in Georgia, or, you know, every single Democratic or progressive or common sense minded person in Georgia votes Democrat for those two senators. You know, I mean, we're, it's going to be four years of, 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 of watching the train go down the track again to, to crush people. And, and so, we, you know, we know how to do it. We just, the people in power aren't doing it. So, 
you know, that's, that's one of the things. Also climate change. We know what we could do against climate change, but we're not taking the steps. And so you can counter argue me and say, well, you know, the cure would be worse than the disease. The same argument that's being used in COVID right now. It, it would hurt people more to shut down the country than it would be to get COVID. You know, that was the human, that was the human strategy when we had no other options. Back with the bubonic plague and every other uh, horrible disease that has spread wild throughout human nature, the only cure for those diseases was herd immunity. Like spread the disease to such an extent that, you know, whoever happens to survive in our Darwinian sense of survival of the fittest, well, then we'd be fine. Like that idea. Also, I believe that like something like as much as a third of Europe's population died of the of the bubonic yeah, plague. Absolutely. So, like, I mean, if that's what we're considering, I uh... well, I mean, that mentality ignores uh, s- centuries of human progress. We're pretty smart people, right? We have the capacities to be wonderful, ingenious, inclusive, amazing uh, creatures that have amazing technology. We're really intelligent. We can also make really dumb decisions too, and not do the things that we know what is right. And so, so long story short, Matt, and all of this, when we're talking about politics, <laughs> um, and 70 million people still voted for Donald Trump, you know, we should be angry about Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell because they they are culpable and causative of our modern train wreck. But we also need to do our job, as I spoke about last episode, to talk to people who don't support your politics and convince them otherwise. You must convince them why your version of reality is better than theirs. And I have never lost a political argument with someone when I tell them I'm fighting for them to have health care. It's not an us versus them, you know? Like, I'm fighting for you to have universal basic income, health care, and housing. And the only argument they can ever counter to me is, I can't imagine how that would work. So it's a lack of imagination. And there's, there are libraries full of leftist progressive writings on human imagination and how that has been the hamstring, ham, the major uh, hamstringing of progressivism in the United States, is lack of imagination. Children have imagination. We lose imagination as we get older. Anyone who's worked with a child knows that. Anyone who's had children knows that. Humans are incredibly imaginative. As we get older, we lose the capacity for imagination, unless we exercise that. And so we need, you know, if the only thing you can counter my argument with in terms of wanting to give you healthcare, housing, universal basic income, and fighting climate change is that you can't imagine that happening, then I think I won that argument. And I'm sorry you can't imagine it. I'm going to fight for it to happen. And so... We, we talk about a lot this hour on 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. We were talking about COVID-19 locally, nationally, and globally. We want to try to keep mitigating the effects of COVID-19. We can do that by physical distancing and wearing a mask. The numbers are really bad in Monroe County right now, and we got to take care of ourselves and others. I want to announce, though, that we have a guest in the studio for the next couple of minutes, John Regan of the Esquire Hour, the killer show that comes on after hours. John, what do you got coming up on the Esquire Hour today? Well, guys, uh, we were just going to get you know away a little bit from all the heated political issues and just go into something a little more scholarly. Uh, so to compare and contrast... 
um, some of the ancient laws that form the basis, the ancient systems of law that form the basis for what we call the law today. So there is the the 42 laws of Mat, the Kemet, which is an African-based or Egyptian-based system of law, the Code of Hammurabi, which everybody knows, Roman law, which kind of formed the started to form the basis of uh, Western law. And then, you know, you can get up into the English common law, which emerges in the, you know, post-Middle Ages period. So we're going to just discuss a little bit of that, which, you know, compare and contrast. Um, But it sounds like, you know, we're trying to retain that childlike imagination. Uh, Probably not doing a very good job, but, you you know, we try. So I don't know whether... Because I just heard you talking about that on the radio, so yeah. I, fi- I figured I'd throw that in. Good but connection, John. Sounds like a great episode, Matt and I. We're, we're getting into some of that heated political discussion, as we do on Evidence of Design about the Esquire Hour. is always great to uh, bring a legal analysis and framework to a lot of the events that go on. I think our shows overlap, and I know I learn a lot when I tune into you guys from a legal perspective, so I know I appreciate it. Well, housing, yeah. housing health care... Um, you know, basically economic justice, which I think, you know, I have my own theories about why we have so much of a problem with that in a country that supposedly has so much freedom and so much, uh, you know, basically so much cohesiveness. I think there is uh, cohesiveness around, you know, many of the ideas that we all share. And yet somehow it, it doesn't seem to pan out that well in, you know, day-to-day uh you know how people how people wind up too many homeless people too many economic issues too much poverty too much oppression too much incarceration i mean these are not the kind of problems that you know you would think we would have anyway Amen to that, John. Uh, John, tune in next hour for the Esquire Hour. You just tuned in this hour to Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR. You can find our podcasted episodes anywhere you find a podcast, also on YouTube. I was your host, Jason Taylor, joined by my good friend and co-host, Matt Treadwell. People have inherent value. (laughs) Indeed. People over profits. Until next time, be well, be safe, take care. Amen. And bye-bye.